Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a fabulous episode for you on deck. We are chatting with Carissa Cabrera. Carissa is a marine biologist, and she is also a content creator. You may know her from her own handles on TikTok and Instagram, Carissa and Climate. And she's also the CEO of Future Swell, a modern media platform sharing ocean conservation solutions and scaling ocean climate programs in partnership with nonprofits. In this very chatty sit-down conversation, Carissa and I really do talk about all things ocean. We talk about how she got into marine biology. We talk about ocean climate solutions. We talk about how content creation can play a really vital role in ocean solutions. We talk about tourism and sunscreen. And there are just so many great, really value-packed takeaways. This was a really educational episode for me to be a part of. And this was also so, so much fun. Chris is someone that I've admired for a long time. I'm really proud to call her a friend. And I think you will really enjoy this style of conversation. I will, of course, in the show notes, have all of Carissa's personal links attached, as well as where you can follow Future Swell, so you can learn all about the work that she's doing with nonprofits in ocean conservation. Also in the show notes, you will find my social links as per usual. I'll be sharing lots of videos from today's episode, today's conversation with Carissa, and a new link that will be there in case you missed it. Last week, I announced we are launching an eco-chic newsletter. It is a bi-weekly newsletter, of course, with podcast recaps, but also with sustainability news, little lifestyle tips, recommendations from me and the eco-chic community. So you can sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter with the link in our show notes. Another link that will be down there is the form to submit yourself for our community spotlight. I'm really excited to continue to getting to know the community. I've always really wanted this to be an inclusive, community-oriented project, I suppose, not just simply a podcast. The community spotlights are going to be shared both on social media and the newsletter. And again, it's going to be a really great way to better get to know the EcoChic community. So if you're interested in talking about any sustainability initiatives that you're currently a part of, please do check it out and consider signing yourself up. And with that, let's get into our conversation today with Carissa Cabrera, all things ocean. I hope you enjoy. So you were telling me mm-hmm. that you've lived in Hawaii for seven or eight years. Yeah, 2016. So um, what year is it? Yeah, it's seven. We're yeah. on my seventh year right now. Yeah, and you moved for graduate school. I moved out to get my master's degree, um, a two-year program, and then I ended up staying because I think with my field, it's very um, – what your network is. And I felt like all my job opportunities would be locally based, which they ended up being. Were you a kid who always wanted to be a marine biologist? Kind of. Yeah. Yes. I think I was always like obsessed with the ocean in like a small, cute child way. But then I was maybe going to go into photography or considering marketing. And then I was 16 years old and I saw this like incredible documentary and it just like changed my life. And I was like, I'm doing this. What was the documentary? Have you seen The Cove? Yes. Isn't it absolutely like it's intense? It changed my entire outlook of like how we were treating the ocean. And I, um, ever since then, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do this, I think. And I think it was also like celebrated. I don't know if it was our generation or just when you're a kid, but I was like, this would be a cool thing to do. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I just followed through with it. (laughs) So you were always interested in marine biology. You're from Arizona originally, right? Grew up in Arizona. I like bopped around when I was a child, but yeah. All my upbringing was in Arizona. Okay. Was there one flashbulb moment besides watching The Cove that really inspired you to be like more involved in the ocean, not necessarily dedicate your career to it, but I feel like it had to have been that film. Like I I had beautiful experiences um, like snorkeling when I was a kid, but it was always really special because I grew up in a desert. And so it was something that maybe we did once a year or once every few years. And so it was always really exciting for me. And I remember feeling like it was like another world, but it all turned into conservation once I figured out what was um, happening with animals like 
dolphins with the cove and also with like our coral reefs and everything. And um, when I went to Hawaii, I was confronted with it even more because Hawaii has its own unique environmental and climate problems being an island. Let's talk about them. Tell me a little bit about your work specifically in Hawaii. When I first started working in Hawaii, I was working on protected species. So species that have like laws that protect them, like dolphins, whales, sea turtles, seals, endangered species. And it was like the front lines of all the threats that I saw with these animals. And I was on the reactive side of it, like rescue response, like trying to save them. And it was really disheartening for me. And I was there for maybe like four years. And I just, I was really young in my early twenties and I was just kind of thinking this was the solutions that we needed. And then I realized that if I was going to be staying in ocean conservation for my entire life, I needed to switch over to something that was more sustainable for my mental health. And it turned me into like working on upstream solutions. And so now I work with nonprofits to build solution programs for them and then supplement it all with media, with my own brand and with um, my media firm, Future Swell. Wow. That's a good trajectory. And I like that the mental health component was so significant in your career trajectory. Yeah. Because I feel like for a very long time, and maybe it's like an older generational concept, but for a long time, it was kind of just like you have to push through until you're 60 and like then you can relax and then you can retire. Absolutely not for me. (laughs) And it's hard to maintain that momentum, especially in such an emotionally intensive field, I imagine. Mm -hmm. When it comes to any sort of climate work, it's passion driven. But then when you're adding like an animal component into it, that's very emotionally taxing, I imagine. And that's like what got me into it all in the first place is I felt like so connected to animals. I was always an animal kid and I just, I, I thought that that's what I wanted to do. And it's, it's really interesting when you have this position or experience on a pedestal your whole life and then you get it and you're like, this is literally not, not what I thought it was going to be for me. And now I feel like I really try to prioritize like balance and solutions and community and working on small things that can be like case studies or proof of concept for larger impact, which is what we focus on now. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then also I was working with all these nonprofits that were not using media to help their mission. And I was so frustrated. And I was like, we need influencers. We need people to be talking about, we need to be posting every day. And it was just always um, what we call it in the nonprofit sector. Like uh, if we can do it, we'll do it. It was like the last on the list. It was never a must have or a need to do. And I just was reflecting one day. It was um, during a lot of the social justice uprisings of COVID, I was thinking like, I have to stop doing this and start like doing something that can have a larger impact and change the fabric of society in the most effective way. I can't be down in working for one small nonprofit, reaching maybe like 20 people, like media allows you to reach millions. And that's where all the power is. I feel like sometimes there's a humility aspect to it. In my experience with nonprofits, it's um, sometimes like people don't have the interest in boasting about themselves or they think of it as being overly prideful or like patting yourself on the back too much. But that's what nonprofits need Need in order to gain the momentum for their movements. Yeah, I could go on and on about the nonprofit space. I feel like it has such an opportunity to actually make a larger impact, but nonprofits in the same niche are like pitted against each other because they're competing Competing for the same amount of funding. Yeah. And there's this like almost exploitation and like you need to give everything you can to this nonprofit instead of have like work-life balance and it can just burn people out. And what we found with marine science specifically in conservation is like people are leaving the field around like 26, 27, like permanently because they're not able to They get burned out and they overwork themselves and then they're um, unfulfilled in their work. So, Oh, interesting. 26, 27 is really young. I know. That's like three, four years depending on when you enter the workforce, right? That's really, really young. Yeah. I suppose this idea of burning out emotionally Mm -hmm. is really beneficial in the nonprofit space because they're depending on your passion to drive their mission. Yeah. So – there's not really an incentive for the nonprofit to prioritize your mental health Mm -hmm. as an individual. 
Yeah, like I know so many people that I've worked with who have like not taken vacations in years. I'm just like, how are you still doing this? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just so- exhausting. And that was another thing, and I'm sure you can relate to it. Like I really just always saw myself working for myself, and I just needed to do something that I felt was needed and that it was a, a gap or a puka in what conservation really could benefit from. Quick break to tell you about HelloFresh, America's number one meal delivery kit. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. With HelloFresh, pre-portioned ingredients help cut down on food waste, while step-by-step instructions make cooking an absolute breeze. Something I really love and appreciate about HelloFresh is their commitment to quality seasonal ingredients. Especially right now, it's peak time for summer produce and HelloFresh makes sure you get all the best picks of the season. Their ingredients travel from the farm to your door in less than seven days and you really can't taste the quality. Something else I really love about HelloFresh is that I am someone who enjoys cooking. I enjoy being in the kitchen, but I don't always have the energy to find a new recipe or push myself to try something new. Every single week, HelloFresh offers 40 recipes to choose from, so you really can never get bored. You always find something new to try and love. It is so, so nice to be able to truly enjoy the meal experience. You don't have to worry about getting specialty ingredients you're only going to use once at the grocery store. You don't have to worry about how long your meals are going to take. Most HelloFresh meals take just 30 minutes. Some of them are even ready in less than 15. Plus, HelloFresh is about 25% cheaper than takeout. I know you've heard me talk about HelloFresh before. I know you've been thinking about it. This is your sign. Go to HelloFresh.com slash EcoChic50 and use code EcoChic50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash EcoChic50 and use code EcoChic50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Were you always involved in the climate aspect of marine science or did that come after you became interested in the field? No. So I was originally trying to study the ocean. And then when I was in college, I realized that the ocean was like under extreme threat and endangered species, biodiversity crisis, and realized all the connections with climate through like coral bleaching and ocean acidification. And I was maybe a sophomore, so like 19 or 20. And I quickly realized that it was never going to be studying the ocean anymore. It was always going to be like working in conservation. And it was one of those things where you just dive into a topic and you just learn everything about it. And then it turned into plastic pollution. And then I realized a little later on, like just it's all deeply connected. And so um, now it's ocean climate work. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. I had a similar like foray into climate, I suppose. I was really interested in animal biology And a lot of the work that I was doing, research work or what I was learning in school, was around microevolution events. And I became obsessed with evolution. And it was like my first academic love. But then I was realizing like all of these events that we're seeing in real time are because of the climate pressures being put on these animal species, on these environments. To and migrate and change their exactly. food sources. My, my first degree was in evolution. Ex- oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I love it. I, I look at everything through the lens of evolution and I'm so grateful. Oh, like, I love that. I try to keep it as a lens that I can pull from, but now I'm kind of chaotic about it because, <laughs> because it's so it's so interesting to be impressed with evolution, but then like you realize it's because of climate change. It's not yeah. It's not nearly as exciting when it's put through this like existential crisis. I also think people are like will adapt and they I think that they may not be as aware of actually how long adaptation at scale takes and it's just so much larger than we can conceptualize and so I sometimes educate about that. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, we'll we'll do our best to adapt and things like that. Oh, interesting. Is there an animal case study that people really resonate with uh, from an adaptation perspective? I feel like, okay, so this is one of the awesome things about islands is volcanic islands. They ha- are like a great case study for evolution. That's like the Galapagos where it w- the theory was originally introduced. It's like they just diversify to fit whatever environment they're in. And I hope that we'll be able to do that similarly. But what comes to mind is um, like the marine iguanas of the Galapagos Islands. They are iguanas that learn to swim and get all their food from algae. And they look like Godzilla. (laughs) 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 They are, they're kind of scary looking. (laughs) That's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's a good example. That's a good example. Do you feel like your experience in Hawaii 
has encouraged you to think about working in other islands? Like, would you ever leave Hawaii to do other work? Or is the volcanic perspective important? I work in ocean conservation with, like, specialties in the tropics, right? So that's, like, coral bleaching. Like, the the issues that face tropical islands are so specific. And I think that I'm in that niche forever. And so I could go to move to other islands and help support conservation efforts there. But at the end of the day, um, most of my background is just in things that are impacting islands like climate change, like sea level rise, like coral bleaching. Yeah. Let's talk about coral bleaching. I feel like that's a buzzword that a lot of people like to attach themselves to in the climate crisis, especially uh, in the summertime. Mm -hmm when you're seeing it in the newspaper. So yeah. I feel like a lot of people are familiar with the term, but not necessarily with the actual process or what it even means. Yeah. So let's talk about coral bleaching. <laughs> Give a little crash course Yeah, coral. talk to me about coral bleaching <laughs> like I've never heard about it. Okay, so there are many corals, deep sea corals and shallow corals, but the corals that are shallow have symbiotic algae that live in their skin and they photosynthesize and create their food. And it's a collaborative symbiotic relationship. And when it gets really hot, like a heat wave um, or just increasing ocean temperatures, corals can stress out and they'll expel all of the symbiotic algae. So they're losing their food source, they're losing production, and they're just getting unstabilized. And when that happens, they turn white. So that's like the visual indicator that like, oh, that coral's bleached. And then if the heat wave passes and everything re-regulates and the system goes back to normal, they'll take it back in and maybe they're resilient maybe and they continue to survive. But if it stays warm, they continue to stay stressed and then eventually die. And so this is something that you can see with like extreme weather events or heat waves. But it's also – I'm not sure exactly when this episode's going out, but we're in the summer and – El Nino is coming and El Nino is a like weather phenomenon that increases heat waves. And so I actually have been meaning to do a video on this. They think that we're actually going to hit the 1.5 degrees Celsius degree rise since pre-industrial times, like this summer potentially, because El Nino is an extreme weather event. It's a natural process, but it happens like on a timeline. And so we're preparing for, I work for a coral restoration nonprofit and we're just preparing for bleaching events like at scale this summer. Wow. Yeah. That's really scary. I know. And the thing is, is that El Nino is part of a pattern. There's La Nina years and El Nino years, but we've been in a La Nina years and it's been cooler and we've had like a gracious buffer to the impacts. And now we're going to switch over to El Nino for maybe sometimes it lasts two to four years and then see what it, what a warming world might look like. And then we go back and forth. Whoa. I know. That's really... Not to get too sciencey, but no. I wanted to explain it because it's happen it's gonna happen this summer or it's starting this summer. Wow. Okay, thank you for breaking that down. I feel like that's also a very interesting case study. Like you said, we're gonna know what a warming world looks like mm -hmm. and then go back to where we are. It'll be mm -hmm. a good I mean, I don't want to say a temperature check, but like quite wake literally call, yeah. a wake up call. Exactly. Yeah. For the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think that also we're all working so collectively um, against the climate crisis. But I do think we just need to really connect other sectors back to it. And sometimes I feel like we can be in an echo chamber and we can feel like we're making all this progress. But we have to reach different groups and different industries. Yeah. Like I've, the Hollywood Climate Summit. Like the Hollywood Climate Summit. I was going to say, I feel like ocean solutions to the climate crisis are under-discussed. Mm. But when I think of ocean solutions for the climate crisis as someone who doesn't work in ocean conservation, I am really overwhelmed with the possibility. Because when I think about the ocean, <laughs> I am a little overwhelmed with how vast it is, how mm -hmm. unexplored it is. Does that ever freak you out before we even get into climate solutions? Like, how do you feel about Yeah, I mean, ocean? it's like, I, I'm always, I think there's a quote, I can't recall who said it, but it's like, this isn't really planet Earth. It's like 70% ocean. This is an ocean yeah. planet. And so it's deeply unexplored. It's extremely vast, as you mentioned. We are still learning things about it all the time. Like, Species are being discovered every day, and we just – it's our largest carbon sink. It literally regulates the entire planet. And so when you say, yeah, underutilized climate solutions, I'm like, maybe we should focus on the largest carbon sink if we want to stabilize our climate. But I'm curious. So when you think of ocean solutions, what comes to mind? Is it like sunscreen? Is it like cor protecting coral? Like, <laughs> Oh, I think of – Offshore wind, which is not oh. an ocean solution, but it's like a solution located in the oceans. Yeah. And it'll help us, you know, transition to clean energy. Yeah. What do you think of when you think of ocean solutions? I think of like 
community-based like sustainable fisheries or reforestation of the ocean, so coral planting or mangrove planting or like protected areas, like ocean protected areas, which are growing in size every day. But I was talking to someone recently about all the misinformation going on around offshore wind, and I'm like, this is really going to set us back if people soak this up. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge potential to have our clean energy come from natural processes and tidal energy too. Yeah, absolutely. I think tidal energy is really exciting because to my knowledge, it's not really at scale yet Mm -mm. anywhere, but it's something that people are getting excited about. And I feel the same way about geothermal, like outside of Iceland, especially, there's not really a lot of areas where geothermal is done at scale. But it's an energy solution that people are excited about because of that, because it's a little bit mysterious and untapped. So I feel that ocean solutions would be similar in that capacity, right? Like it's things that are untapped but still so intriguing because of that. Yeah, and I'm a huge proponent of let's just work with nature-based solutions, like solutions that have – been going on for millions of years that were crafted by the earth instead of, you know, I know carbon dioxide removal is um, gaining a lot of traction, but I'm thinking like, why don't we just work with, yeah, the natural tides or mangroves or protecting biodiverse areas? Because I think it will be more effective if we work with earth's natural processes. I love that. I I appreciate that. I have a soft spot, I guess, for mangroves as a climate solution or as like a nature-based solution for- Me too. A lot of things. (laughs) Growing up in South Florida, we were taught in school about mangroves so extensively because there's so much protection for animals and plants and everything going on. And I remember when I was younger, we would watch like the hurricane prep on the news and mangroves was always something they highlighted on the news as like, well, this area will be fine because there's a mangrove forest around it. Or people would take their boats and like drive them closer to mangroves so they'd be better protected from the storm. And I always think about that as like a perfect visual representation of what you want a natural climate solution to look like because it's quite literally like roots everywhere. It's very grounded. It's very easy to understand, especially as a child learning about this in school, what a nature-based protection solution should look like. And actually something that's extremely exciting is in the U.S. we're trying to get that like mangroves or coral reefs designated as infrastructure. So blue or green infrastructure, because it is protecting coastlines, it's protecting surf breaks, protecting fish stocks, all of these things that we rely on economically. And if they're considered infrastructure, then we can tap into funds from the government that support infrastructure. Whereas like, I think typically like a few years ago, you would think like, oh, trains or highways or whatever, if you thought of infrastructure, but really we have this natural capital or blue infrastructure that we need to protect and then scale up. Oh, interesting. I want to talk more about that. So is blue or green infrastructure always a natural solution to protection? So green infrastructure would be something like a complete mangrove forest, but then there's this other part of it called um, green gray infrastructure, which is kind of like a hybrid between man-made infrastructure and um, mangrove. So that could be like having like a seawall. Yeah. A seawall would just be gray infrastructure. So if it was like a seawall plus restoring a coral reef, like, or a mangrove forest, that would be green gray. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How do you feel about things like seawalls, like gray infrastructure that is literally placed in the ocean? Yeah. So seawalls are shown to actually increase erosion. I'm so sorry to to burst that bubble, (laughs) but I think that there's lots of ways to shore up shorelines by just providing, you know, adding soil to mangroves to help them stabilize so their roots aren't being removed. And I think that human influence is really important to help kind of these already natural buffers just stay resilient. So an example of green gray infrastructure that would be really awesome is in Hawaii, when we restore coral reefs, we'll put corals on like cement modules. And then those modules or they're like pyramids will go out into the ocean and the corals grow from them. But that cement is technically gray infrastructure that was put in by humans. So. Oh, interesting. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. I've never heard of that. I I feel like it's all emerging right now. That's what's so exciting about ocean conservation is there's so many niches being built out. Like I think like a year or two ago, I didn't know anyone really talking about ocean conservation solutions on social media or ocean podcasts or things like this. And now it's just kind of, we're all just getting our shit together. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so at least. Quick break to tell you about Air Doctor. 
living in the American West, where we are thinking a lot about wildfires this time of year, and then living in a really urban environment, I am constantly thinking about my air quality. Seriously, every time I go to check the weather, I also check the air quality of that day to make sure it's safe for me to be outside for extended periods of time. Poor air quality definitely deters me from doing outdoor activities. And then of course, by the same token, I wanna make sure that I am providing myself with the best air quality possible in my own home. According to the EPA, Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors and indoor air can be as much as 100 times more polluted than outdoor air. I'm excited that today's episode is sponsored by Air Doctor because air purification is a climate-ready solution that you can take on in your home today. We're breathing about 30,000 gallons of air per day. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that's been independently tested to remove 99.99% of bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, any stinky gym clothes, chemical cleaning products, the Air Doctor is always on call to help your air stay fresh and clean. I actually have two Air Doctor purification systems in my house. I have one in my living room, and then I also have one in my office slash podcast studio. Again, especially because I live in a big city, and then I also live in an area that's prone to wildfires. I'm constantly thinking about my air quality, and it really does bring me so much peace of mind. I especially love that Air Doctor is so, so quiet. Their exclusive Whisper Jet fans are 30% quieter than the fans in an ordinary air purifier. So I can run it here, again, in the podcast studio slash office. It's time to get peace of mind with Air Doctor. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, you can just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to airdoctorpro.com and use code ECOCHIC. And depending on the model, you receive up to 39% off or up to $300 off. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code ECOCHIC. One last time, that's up to 39% off or up to $300 off if you go to AirDoctorPro, A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code ECOCHIC. It will be in the show notes. I love that. Something you mentioned that I want to talk more about is this community aspect. So you were mentioning the human influence on conservation. Right. There is also, of course, great potential for humans to do harm, Mm -hmm. as we well know, to the natural environments. So can we talk a little bit about the human component to ocean conservation? What are some things that people do well uh, in their ocean conservation? What are some things that we can improve? Yeah. So someone that I like really look up to, he um, told me once he was like, you know, we think we're managing the ocean, but we're really managing people who are managing the ocean. We can establish a marine protected area or we can create a biodiversity, um, like natural park. But at the end of the day, it's the people who are managing that. And so community-based conservation, which is what I primarily focus on, is really, um, we call it also bottom-up, where the local community that is in the area are the ones who are crafting the conservation solution. They're the ones who are going to be stewarding and leading the conservation solution. And then it'll kind of be tailored to whatever um, region they're working in. And so I've had the privilege of seeing this at scale in Chile. And there was a island offshore and they completely stewarded all of their fisheries, all of their invasive species, everything themselves. But they decided what their community needed. And then scientists just came in and said, how can we help you? Conservationists came in. How can we scale this up? And now they're one of like the most sustainable lobster fisheries in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank so you. I think that it's it's a beautiful way to just center the communities that are really have been relying on those resources for generations. And in Hawaii, especially pre-occupation, there wasn't issues with unsustainable resources. Everyone was stewarding their resources fine. Hawaii had electricity before the White House did. (laughs) Whoa, I didn't realize that. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's a beautiful opportunity to kind of uplift fishers or conservationists or people who live on the water to help be like, what does the ocean need from your experience on the water and work with researchers? I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that. I think community-based solutions are interesting in the context of tourism. Mm -hmm. I think Hawaii is a perfect place to discuss this because in theory, there's a lot of good that tourism could do. But I feel like Hawaii is a perfect example of somewhere where people are encouraged to not travel if they're not dedicated to 
really honest solutions for that community. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what businesses are in the area of the tourism destination. So if it's local businesses that are taking you out snorkeling or it's their family hotel that they run, that's keeping the money within that economy. Whereas if it's a corporation that has a hotel there that isn't even based in the area, that's extractive and exploitative, at least from the accommodation side. I think the same goes with like activities and excursions that you do. You can go out and snorkel, but who owns a snorkeling company and um, who are you supporting and where are you investing your time and money when you go visit somewhere? And I think that intentionality can change how our generation and younger generations actually travel and see the world. Cause I think it's all, it's important to all of us, but we just have to be mindful in a lot of different ways, depending on where you're going. Yeah. Mm. When people come to visit you, I imagine you have a lot of visitors living in Hawaii. When people come to visit you, what are the activities that you engage with? Um, what are the activities that you encourage them to do or that you do with them? Because I imagine you also have a pulse now on the community that you're taking people to do something special on their vacation. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? I love to obviously show everyone a hike, show everyone the beach and certain spots that might not be actually, I guess, as overrun and places that are pristine and cared for. And then I always like taking people to like a farmer's market or a community event or a nonprofit celebration because they're so fun there. Like, for example, our beach cleanups are like beach festivals and it's like live music and free food and all this stuff. And it's ingrained in the culture to care for the places that you go. And I just I really just want to share that with them because that's kind of what we should all be doing in our day to day life. But especially as a visitor and especially if you come to Hawaii. I love that. I love I feel like you must also have very strong feelings about animal conservation. Yes. In Hawaii? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of endangered species because it's an island. And so there's just so much opportunity to connect like young kids to, to animals and then use that as like a gateway to care for other things in the ocean. And yeah, I, I love animals. <laughs> oh, I love that. I shared this with you yesterday. I am a little bit intrigued with the conspiracy theories of mermaids. Like, <laughs> I feel like we've been fed this narrative that like mermaids are these like wonderful, beautiful, nice creatures underwater. And then the more I think about it, I'm like, actually, if there are mermaids, like maybe they're not that nice. I probably sound like a crazy person right now. We grew up with the mermaid era. We grew up in the mermaid era and we grew up with everyone like obsessed with the Lisa Frank dolphins. And like the ocean was always so kitschy to mm -hmm. us as kids. I'm like, let's use that to turn that into conservation. Oh, I love that. Like, what is the pipeline of, like, Lisa Frank, dolphin girl, mermaid girl to marine biology? Like, how can we make this as attractive as possible while still marketing climate solutions? To this is exactly what I'm doing with my personal brand is I'm like, let's make – everyone loves the ocean. It, I was telling you the other night, like, it's not politicized. And so – People can feel nervous about the ocean, scared of it, or like curious and like there's mermaids there and what's what's in the deep and all of this. And we can turn that into let's care for this incredible ecosystem that we don't understand as well as we could, but that needs our help. And then we can turn that into – and also it's our largest carbon sink and it can be an entryway into climate solutions. And I think there is a strong pipeline that I'm trying to formalize by just kind of – sparking curiosity with content that is exciting about the animals that live in the ocean or the things you can do in the ocean, but then really turning that into, and how can we all help it? Because we need everybody to help the ocean. Oh, I love that. I think that's a great marketing angle, frankly. Like that's a good pipeline to tap into. Content is so valuable when it comes to that. And like, think about all the young girls. I mean, I grew up loving mermaids and that's primarily who my audience is, is young girls who just love the ocean. Love it. Mm -hmm. When you've mentioned carbon sinks, I'm sorry to backtrack a little no, bit. of course. You've mentioned carbon sinks a couple of times. What is a carbon sink and how can we really accelerate our usage of them? Great question. So one of the best carbon sinks that I think everybody knows is trees. We want to plant more trees to help suck carbon out of the atmosphere and replace it with oxygen. That's photosynthesis, basic. We learned it in high school. And the ocean has that at scale with, honestly, it's called plankton, phytoplankton. The ocean is doing that all the time, 24 hours a day. And it's incredibly powerful. And the ocean creates 60 to 70% of the oxygen that we breathe. So every breath of air that we take was created by the ocean. And that's through pulling carbon dioxide out of it. So if we have a really healthy, robust ocean ecosystem, 
it's going to be buffering us against climate change. And something that I think a lot of people don't realize is that the ocean, because it's water instead of air, it also absorbs around 90% of the excess heat in our atmosphere. So if we don't have the ocean, imagine how much hotter it would be. It would it would be unbearable. I don't think we realize what a gracious buffer the ocean is giving us when it comes to this. And so building resilient ocean ecosystems is just a way to save the planet. Wow. Thank you for that. And when we say resilient ocean ecosystems, are we thinking diversification in terms of plant life, animal life, how we're using certain areas, how we're not using certain areas? Yeah. So I think about things from like the full ecosystem lens and it's like, you know, having healthy coral reefs, having healthy populations of fish, of predators, having um, clean water that doesn't have pollution in it and having no plastic pollution in those areas. All of that contributes to healthy functioning ecosystems that ultimately provide us with food, water, livelihoods, jobs. I love talking about the ocean. Wait, I love this. We also talked a little bit about the education aspect of it. So here we're talking about carbon sinks, which you mentioned, like we've learned about this in high school and this is something that we should all have in the back of our heads. What do you think is one of the most under- valued or under-discussed aspects of ocean conservation? I think that, um, and this is, I will preface this by saying it's getting so much better now, but um, coastal communities, frontline coastal communities are the ones who hold all of the knowledge of how to steward their resources. And sometimes we'll have governments be like, this is a solution for this area, or Um, we'll have laws put in place that suddenly have blanket solutions, right? But at the end of the day, it's those local coastal communities that are living every day by the ocean that have all the information needed for conservation solutions. And if we're not working with them when we're implementing ocean-based solutions, we're really missing the mark. And it's also a form of extraction by having conservation be placed in areas without consulting local communities. And so one nonprofit that I love till the day I die is Conservation International. They work around the world and they work specifically with local communities to build the conservation programs and then provide training so that they can keep the programs going in their own backyards. And that's what we're trying to replicate this in Hawaii. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think the biggest underutilized tool is that we're just not as much as we could consulting with the coastal communities in a way that is just... Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. When I think of coastal communities and kind of blanket policies, I immediately think of the reef safe sunscreen discussion mm-hmm. where there's a lot of value in discussing reef safe sunscreens, but sometimes it is this sustainability cop out measure for communities to just pass a blanket policy as opposed to yeah. supporting those brands in that area or really discussing with the local community what it is that they're looking for in more sustainability-related policies. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's also this concern with copping out with sustainability solutions. So be it. Absolutely. And like I believe that what we call it is conservation entry points. We call them SEPs at Future Swell. And I think sunscreen is a great conservation entry point because it empowers people to feel like they can do an individual task to help reefs. But like climate change is the biggest threat to coral reefs. It's not sunscreen. And so when we talk about those policies that are blanket, it's like, well, we would like you to also use reef safe sunscreen, but then we would also like you to learn more about coral reefs and the real threats that are hurting coral reefs and then implement solutions and play a more active role from that lens as well. And so um, whenever I'm talking with other folks that work in ocean conservation, we're like, the sunscreen same with straws, right? We saw that with plastic pollution. It just got all the attention. And then it's about taking that attention and putting it in the most effective way. And so with straws, we saw, I believe, I don't know if you saw Seaspiracy, the documentary. I don't think I did. Um, it, It basically talked a lot about plastic pollution in the ocean, but it debunked that straws were the largest like source of plastic pollution, which I think people thought after that viral video for many years ago. And it talked about the way that actually industrial fishing gear that was left behind from high seas fishing activities is really the largest threat um, as far as plastic pollution in the ocean. And kind of taking that power of people being interested in one small thing and pushing them into like the more effective solution is what I try to do with conservation entry points. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. I feel like straws is an interesting 
discussion <laughs> because straws is also something that gets so much attention that people love to rally behind how much they hate paper straws and how much they don't mind having their plastic straw and whatever it is. But it's also very much deflecting from the greater problem that is. Mm-hmm. But something like I always think about is that that entire movement, which resulted in city and county policies, state policies to ban plastic straws, that was all catalyzed by a video that went viral on social media. The turtle and the The turtle and the straw. Yeah. So I'm like, if a video can do that at scale, like, I have to be putting all of my energy into content because it resulted in widespread policy changes across the nation. And that's really ultimately what we need is people just feel something and become aware of this threat. And it's something that I think content creators and media producers have such so much access to be able to do. Yeah. How did you get into creating content about the ocean? So I was extremely frustrated politically in the U.S. and I was using TikTok as like an outlet. And then when I realized that how many people were on there and how impressionable the audience was, I quickly segued over to, to ocean conservation work because it's what my background is in. It's because it's what I studied and it's the topics that I feel most passionately about. And I knew that would be the most sustainable form of content creation. And so, um, I think I just, I started, I started and then I tried to stay consistent and now here we are and years have passed. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. That's a good tip or like story for people to learn from that you found something that you were passionate about and something that you already knew and just yeah. wanted to share it with the world. Yeah. Science communication is a huge emerging field in climate and conservation and ocean work. Like we need more science communicators. And a lot of that looks like um, social media or podcasts or YouTube and all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. I feel like there's now a generation that's recognizing the value of all of these platforms as valuable, true science communication. Is there a piece of content that you're surprised resonates with so many people that you've created? For myself? Yeah. I Okay. My experience has been that everybody wants to be a marine biologist and views it as like this exciting National Geographic thing. And that's always the content that does well. Interesting. Like how to be a marine biologist content. Yes. It's like young people who like are looking and are reflecting on what jobs they want. And they're just like, I want to be a marine biologist. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, it's going to turn, I, I'm going to try to turn it into conservation for you. <laughs> it's that mermaid girl, dolphin girl pipeline. Exactly. The pipeline that I'm leveraging yeah. for impact, hopefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you think was the most surprising thing when you got into marine biology? I think I really didn't realize how much the ocean needed our help. Like like I said, I was really trying to study the ocean and study these animals that I loved and always felt connected to and learn more about them and share that information. And then I quickly realized that we weren't really in an information deficit when it came to the ocean or climate. It, we just really needed people to start acting. And so I moved more into community education and activism and outreach. And then I that turned into media with COVID because um, I felt like it was the most effective way to educate people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When people reach out to you asking how did you get into this field? How can I get into this field? I feel like marine biology is also such a vast field with a lot of different specialties, a lot Mm -hmm. of different entry points for people. If people are interested in getting into marine biology, where do you encourage them to start? Yeah. So that was actually the foundation of why we started our podcast, Sustainability in the Sea, because we're getting so many questions about the field and just like basic level questions. Like I just want to learn more about it and what my options are. But what I always tell people is that This is like one of the fastest growing fields um, because of the climate crisis. And so you can specialize in anything in marine biology now. And all of these different sectors are popping up every few years. And so there's – and a ton of funding is going to it because our governments and people are demanding solutions. And so it's not – the way maybe it was 20 years ago when there weren't that many options and you had to be a professor and you weren't going to make a salary that was reliable. It's actually, there's never been more opportunity in marine biology or more funding or more opportunities for people to make an impact for the ocean. And so I always tell people, just come come do it. It'll work out. <laughs> pick your specialty later. Yeah, pick, uh, try it all. Try, try literally all. all of it. Because then you could be in a situation like I was where I thought I wanted to rescue animals and I was rescuing animals and I was like, actually, I want to make videos. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, it's also 
valuable to know that there is space for kind of adjacent careers in the marine biology space. You don't necessarily need to be a scientist. We need people who are taking the photos and taking Mm -hmm. the videos and doing the marketing for all these organizations. Yeah, we need agencies and business folks and architecture. Like there's we need actually everybody who's not a scientist to come into this field now if we're going to scale up all the solutions. And I always talk about how the ocean needs the, the greatest marketing agency ever. <laughs> yeah. There's a PR opportunity at hand. Yeah. What was it, what would be your favorite ocean animal? Oh, that's hard. Sea turtles, actually. Ooh. Sea turtles. So when I was in college, um, when I was studying evolution, I worked for this – I did research, I suppose, at a sea turtle lab at UNC with loggerhead sea turtles. Amazing. And I did that for three years, and it was an incredible experience. And I learned so much about turtles. And to me, the sea turtles were like a placeholder for anything else I wanted to do. But I loved that experience. And I, I never talk about it because I never did anything even like remotely related to it. But yeah, so I would have to say a sea turtle would be like my favorite. Did you see the little babies run to the ocean? Yes. Yes. There was one summer where I reached out to this organization in Florida, like on the Tampa Bay. And I was like, hey, I just want to know if you have any like hatchings that I can go to. And they were like, yeah, please. We actually need people that have experience handling turtles to like guide them to where. And I was like, sign me up. So I took my whole family. (laughs) (laughs) So I took my whole family. And it was such a beautiful experience. I don't think I have any photos because it was like pitch black in the middle of the night watching all these turtles hatch, but it was such a beautiful experience. So I think that those, which I would call that would be a conservation entry point, those experiences need to be more accessible to like anyone who's visiting anywhere. And I think that the opportunity with tourism industries is like, what if a nonprofit, I mean, you need to have a lot of um, training and briefings and education about it. But imagine if that could be one of the experiences that you have when you visit somewhere. So then you're immediately understanding the threats. And then there's a conservation briefing in the entire experience. I just, I feel like that that's the f- future of tourism, oh, conservation tourism. That's such a good example of conservation tourism. I know. Like you're like, I brought my family and then they were stoked on it. And it was probably a memory that you guys still think about all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good one. What's another example of conservation tourism? Because I feel like I haven't heard that term very often. I I think I made it up. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Um, They also, you know, you've probably heard sustainable tourism. I know you had Mm -hmm. Sophia on or regenerative tourism is another example that um, is kind of emerging. But really, it's just opportunities for visitors to give back in a way that isn't extractive and is in in a way that learns that you learn about the local culture and local environment and then help leave it a little better than you found it. Oh, I feel like that's tricky. That's a slippery slope, I feel like. It is a slippery slope. Because how does it not teeter into saviorism for that area? Exactly. And I think that also one example that I always use with this is say you're going to visit um, Catalina Island, right? And you're – going scuba diving. Well, there should be a conservation briefing about all the animals you'll see and what threats to the local ecosystem are there. And that conservation briefing should be led by a resident from that area that has the knowledge and that can speak to their own personal experience to it. And then the people from that maybe dive boat or whatever can leave knowing the information that's sound, right? And then they can share that as they need. But I think that as long as the local communities are centered and empowered to be leading and guiding the program, hopefully we don't end up with those um, consequences of saviorism. (laughs) That's a really good example of having a local person in the area come to speak to the conservation because you're adding something into an experience that people are already buying into. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily need to sell them a totally new experience Mm -hmm. for it to be a conservation tourism activity. I'm sure you also are like this where you have like a million projects you want to do all the time. But one of them is like creating a conservation briefing for scuba dive shops in Hawaii and just being like, here are some things you can touch on from your area and having it just be a resource so that when they're training new employees or dive instructors, they have that context that they're just passing on to the divers that they're that are they're having on the boat. So yeah, maybe I'll do that. (laughs) I love that idea. Yeah. I'm all for it. I support you. <laughs> yeah. What are some easy takeaways for people who do not live near the ocean but still want to be involved? Absolutely. I always tell people we live on a deeply interconnected planet. So good news for everyone. Everything you do impacts the ocean. So especially knowing 
that all waterways are connected to the ocean, all drains lead to the ocean. Really, as much as cleaning up a stream or making sure something doesn't go into the gutter is protecting the ocean because land-based pollution is the largest form of pollution in the ocean. And so we all have a role to play when it comes to um, making sure that the ocean stays healthy, even if we're far away from it. Same with the ingredients and the products that we use or chemicals. They go down the drain, they ultimately end up in the ocean. And so that's really empowering because as an individual, all of our choices can be choices for a better ocean or for a less healthy ocean. And then we get to make those decisions ourselves. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. I feel like those are really great tips to share as a closing note for folks Mm -hmm. because I feel like the ocean is very intriguing. It is extremely intriguing. It's intriguing. It's it's also terrifying and also amazing. And I think that the cool thing about the ocean is it can be all of it at once. Oh, I love that. Thank you. So my biggest takeaway is just for people to go into the ocean. (laughs) That's if you want to save the ocean, just start – Start going if you can. And even if it's just spending time at the beach, it's like being near water is shown to help us, our well-being, our mental health. It's being demonstrated through therapy and it, through ocean immersion classes. And we just have these untapped resource. And all I think so many solutions to the world's problems can be found in the ocean. And I hope that it just sparks people's curiosity, even if they're curious about mermaids, to learn more about it. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Something you mentioned earlier, which I thought was so interesting, was the lobster fisheries. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times we fear eating things from the ocean, harvesting mm-hmm. food from the ocean mm-hmm. as Western consumers, as people with communities that haven't historically been yeah. deeply invested, I suppose, like economically in the ocean. And there are so many ways to just make smaller, better choices, whether that is buying from a sustainable fishery or encouraging yourself to learn a little bit more about the solutions that are available. So that's really empowering. Uh, Yeah, I'm a huge proponent for plant-based eating. I think that it's obviously an imperative climate solution, but I also want to recognize that it is what's available to you in your society. So, you know, here where we are or in the global north or in western countries plant-based eating has never be never been this accessible and it's incredible right but then if you scale up and you look at the world around 3 billion people rely on seafood for their primary source of protein so the idea of wiping out fishing that's about half the world so the idea of wiping out fishing as a solution just simply is unrealistic and so how can we work with coastal communities that rely on these industries to make sure that they're not harming these ecosystems. And I think that I always say, like, I want to live in a world of ands instead of ors. And so we can champion plant-based eating and support coastal communities and sustainable fisheries, and they're all helpful. Oh, I love that. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. That's a really nice note to close us out with. Because like I said, I feel like there's so many tangents you can go on with the ocean. Like, I just kind of want to pick your brain for hours. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.